Okay, everyone. So we have Tom Venuto with us today. I'm very excited to talk to him today. He's been a huge influence in my life and my lifting career, and we're going to go into that a little bit. Uh, he is the founder of the uh, Burn the Fat Inner Circle online. He's written Burn the Fat, Feed the Muscle. Uh, you had an older website, bodybuildingsecrets.com, right? I used to read articles on there as well. Um, and I mean, you've been all over the place with ebooks, uh, a lot of consults. You've been on the news, I think. And so you've been all over. Um, when did you really get into this yourself? I started lifting when I was 14. Uh, okay. I saw Arnold and Conan the Barbarian, and that was all the motivation I needed. Plus, you know, I was a freshman in high school, so I was pretty self-conscious about how I looked. You know, I was flat. I wasn't obese, but I was pretty flabby. Mm -hmm. man, man boobs and a pretty good spare tire on the waist. So I just wanted to get in shape. So uh, I just started following the workouts from uh, Arnold's education of a bodybuilder book when I was a teenager, and I did that all through uh, high school. Made some pretty good progress. Um, then slipped back in college when I went to college and uh, yeah. discovered beer. That was kind of my downfall. Gained like 20 pounds of fat. But I was going to school for an exercise science degree, and so it just didn't uh, it didn't jive. You know, I, I didn't feel like I was being a good example. So I sure. uh, that was the year I decided that uh, I was going to compete because all my buddies at the gym said, you know, this is here's you want to get you want to get back into shape. Here's what you got to do. You got to compete. Wow. And um, and they they all taught me. They taught me how to do a, a bodybuilding contest diet and train for the contest. And um, from there, I competed 28 times since then. And I went on. I did get my uh, degree in exercise science, um, certified strength and conditioning specialist, personal trainer, and just uh, started out back then. This was back in the early 90s and through the 90s, um, personal training people in the gyms and uh, managing health clubs. And it was only later that I got into um, writing and online publishing. Right, and that's what I think a lot of people might not be completely aware of because you're so known for the burn the fat, feed the muscle, and, you know, fat loss is your, your main thing, but you have this right. huge career in bodybuilding and, you know, muscle growth and this big background that I think a lot of people aren't completely aware of. Yeah, well, that was a long time ago. That was a, that was a whole, um, almost a bygone era, you know, the late 80s and, and 90s, and things have come a long way since then. But on the other hand, there was a lot of things that were really cool about, you know, back back in those times. And I, I was really glad that they had natural organizations, for example. I mean, the, the natural, I'm not even sure when the, the, the drug-tested competition started. There might have been one in the late 70s, but, but really it was in the 80s, I think, that it, it started to catch on. And by the 90s, yeah. there was all kinds of organizations. Some of them aren't even around anymore. But, you know, if we decided not to use anything, we had an opportunity to have a level playing field and go into competitions that were tested. And that's so most of the competitions I did were drug-tested organizations. And, uh, and I jumped into a few NPC shows as well just to see what would happen. Awesome. And what weight did you compete at, roughly? Uh, I mean, when I'm sure I, changed over the when years. I, yeah, when I started, I was a lightweight. You know, I, yeah. I, I was fat in college, and so I was over 200 pounds. And in the year after that, I, I dropped off to 20 pounds of excess fat I had put on in college, and then I kept going and cut further, I ended up being a lightweight after a year. I was 154 pounds in my first show. It was the natural New Jersey that was down in Wildwood. And, oh, wow. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a blast. Uh, and then by the next year, I'd gotten up to 167. So I, did, I was a middleweight then. And then at my peak, I was right at the top of the middleweights. Uh, about okay. 175, 176 was the heaviest I ever competed. And that's around like 5'10 or so? 5'8". Five eight. Okay, so yeah, that's pretty stacked then. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, I got into it pretty much around the same time as you. You said fourteen, and fourteen is when I started reading your material. So I mean, that was you know well before YouTube Fitness and Instagram and all that stuff was big at all. Uh, that was the days of like the eBooks were really popular and the forums. And so I think I first saw you in Mark David's eBook, 
Um, he had mentioned you. And there was a book where they had uh, month-long programs, and you wrote Tom Venuto's Growth Spurt. I don't know if you remember the details of that. Oh. But, uh, yeah, it was a while back. And I read it, and I didn't have a car or anything because I was 14, so I would go at 5 a.m. with my dad. And these workouts would just kill me. And just as an example, <laughs> for the leg workouts, you would have two sets of breathing squats. So, you know, take a 10 to 12 rep max and then just somehow get 20 reps and just, you know, feel like you're going to die. Then numerous supersets of leg extension with a leg press, hack squat with a lunge, and then that was just quads. And then you kill yourself again with hams and then calves. And I mean, there were several times I had trainers coming up to me asking me if I was okay because it was just (laughs) killing me. Um, But, you know, I loved it. You know, know, I was gaining a ton. It was awesome. So uh, that that was a while back. Um, Now, now things are obviously very different. And I wanted to ask you your opinion of how things have changed. If you think it's good change or bad change, the way social media has progressed with this compared to maybe the old school with magazines or even the forum days. Well, I think we can all argue it, it's it goes both ways. You know, it's a double edged sword. You know, with social media, uh, especially. Um, well, I mean, let's focus on the positive. I mean, look at how the evidence based uh, area yeah. of fitness has grown. It's just been incredible, and and it, and it's grown exponentially. In the last just what five, six, eight years, right? You know, we've got people putting out outstanding research reviews, uh, which for the for the really serious um, athlete might get into it, but for fitness professionals, it's just it's such a great resource. For example, just to give a shout out to a couple of people, James Krieger's research mm-hmm. review is excellent, and Greg yeah. Nichols has got one that's only been out for two years, and that one's it's yeah, just that one. And Eric Helms is involved with that, too. They're just putting out some great information. And it's a really great educational resource. I mean, fitness pros who want to stay on top of the research, but they just don't have time to read all the individual studies. I mean, who does, really? I mean, it's like that's a full-time job. I mean, it's more than a full-time. It's a full-time job for a whole team of people to try to stay on top of that stuff. So it's a good way to stay up to date. And that kind of information really was not available years ago. In fact, there wasn't even as much of an emphasis on – not even just science, but critical thinking. I mean, mm-hmm. go, going along with all of this evidence-based study is your thought process and how to think about things because there's so much noise out there. It's so hard. I mean, that's that's one of the downsides now in the digital age and the internet age and, and, and all of the social media. There's so much information coming at us. Right. And if it was all, you know, in agreement and in alignment, that would be one thing, but it's completely opposed. I mean, you're getting advice that's yeah. just, diametrically opposite one another and and a lot of people are just absolutely confused so if you if not only if you understand um, what evidence-based what that what that means and you also put some effort into learning the critical thinking process um, between the two of those you can sort through all of this so I mean I'd I'd like to think that it's more good and more positive what's going on right now but you know aside from the internet overload Oh, the information o- overload. I'm, you know, I, I think it's really we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I would agree. I think the people you mentioned are doing great service. Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, James Krieger, and others. Um, and I think, like you said, a lot of that just wasn't available. And I mean, there were there were so many articles in the past where everything was just bro science. And I mean, you still get that today. But I, I think people who are really looking into it agree that you know we can at least look at the science now and see where that's going. And so I do yeah. think that's you know one of the big improvements. Um, so actually this weekend, yeah, I'll probably be posting this in a few weeks, but this weekend is the Olympia weekend. So are you watching that at all? Are you following along or not so much? No, no, I, I followed pro bodybuilding when I was a teenager in my twenties and then I just kind of lost interest because it's just, it's, it's completely 
uh, it just goes in a direction that I that I, I've lost interest in. Not so um, good, yeah. You know, every once in a while I take a look. I mean, it, on one hand, you got to be impressed with what the human body is possible. What, sure. What's, what's you know what's possible on that extreme, but it's really it's not the um, ideal that I'm aiming for or that I really encourage other people to aim for. I mean, it's really. Right. I mean, that's just such a tiny, tiny piece of um, fitness. Um, and and what what bodybuilding really is, you know, I'm sure. I'm, a, I'm a bigger fan of the classic, the classic old, you know, the the, the golden age bodybuilders, and I, I do think it's interesting though. I notice that they have a classic physique division now, which I, yeah, I, I, which I think is really cool. I mean, some of those those physiques are pretty incredible. They're, I mean, just the aesthetics, um, yeah, is fantastic. Yeah, they uh, that actually seems to be talked about more than anything else this year. Um, Chris Bumstead, Brian Ainsley, some of them have unbelievable physiques. So yeah, I agree there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of mentioned like the health aspect. And I remember and this was years back, but I remember you had mentioned, I forget the exact topic, but you were saying how, you know, one of the things either with, um, you know, professional bodybuilding, but also nowadays there's a whole if it fits your macros group mm -hmm. and all of that. And I remember you saying that a lot of this stuff kind of missed the point and how we want to be healthy, that bodybuilding is supposed to be a way to be healthy. And so, I mean, I don't know your feelings on the people who take if it fits your macros to the extreme there. But I know in a lot of your work that I had read in the past, it was very by the books bodybuilding. So it's still a completely clean diet. Um, is that something? I, mean, I think even I remember you reading, or at least reading that you said maybe once a year you'll have a cheat meal, and it's like your, <laughs> it's something that your mom made, right? Like her pie or something like that. And I don't know if do you still stick to being that regimented and that no, recommend? No, no, okay. and it's not what I'd recommend other people. Uh, really? I, okay. What I what I do recommend is I, I prefer the term flexible dieting. Okay. Over if it fits your macros. Um, although, I mean, I have no problem with if it fits your macros. I mean, I've been doing meal plans by the numbers since I was a teenager. I mean, I was introduced to this idea when I was in college. I took a nutrition class, mm -hmm. and the professor had us do a, an analysis of our diet, and it was done on a piece of software. And meal by meal, it calculated the calories, protein, carbs, and fats. It was like on a spreadsheet. I'm like, oh, yeah. well, that makes perfect sense. That's and that was, you know, the precursor to me learning and teaching meal planning. And then I went to work for Gold's Gym for a while. And back in the 90s, they had this program called Nutrition Analysis. I think it changed to Apex. Okay. It, was a, it was a nutrition coaching service. You know, this is like we're going back 20 years now. Yeah, yeah. And they would sit down in person with a client in front of a computer. And basically what they had was a nutrition software pre-internet. So, I mean, this was not connected right, to right. the web. There was, no, there was no web. You just sit in front of a computer and um, the the technician, nutrition technician, would guide um, the client to create a meal plan, and it was by macros. It was proteins, carbs, fats, and they were talking about the percentages of each. So you walked out of the office with a meal plan on paper by the calories, by the macros, and it's a pretty simple concept. You don't wing it anymore. You just eat what's on that piece of paper. You just follow that plan. And then right. you're and then you're taught a system for exchange exchanging foods. So each food had an exchange uh, number attached to it. Like let's say protein was exchange group one, and mm -hmm. a fibrous carb is exchange group two, and a, and a starchy carb is exchange group three. And then you have a list of foods to swap. So you have this meal plan you follow, and you swap foods out. So this was doing it by the macros decades ago. It's not a right. new, it's not a new concept. The sure. the thing that happened with if it fits your macros was there's a there's a word that's presumed in that sentence. If it fits your macros, then 
eat whatever the heck you want. Okay. Right, and right. Some people presume that and, and some people don't make that assumption, but that's where it goes wrong is when it starts to ignore food quality. So the, the, the interesting thing about uh, doing it by the macros is if you're in a caloric deficit and you're hitting your macros, you can lose fat on a junk food diet. Sure. And that's a concept that a lot of people who are health foodies, they can't wrap their head around that idea. It just it does right. not make sense. It's like if I eat a candy bar, I'm going to get fat. Mm-hmm. Well, no, because we know, uh, we know people who competed and ate a slice of pizza every day and got shredded. Or, you know, a, a figure athlete who she had a candy bar every single day. There was a case study of that exactly, and she mm-hmm. got shredded. For the, so it's not that foods turn into fat. It's excess calories turn into fat. I mean, that's the thing that we want to realize with, with if it fits your macros. I just prefer uh, um, the concept of flexible dieting, which is flexible dieting versus rigid dieting. If you're too rigid, it becomes hard to stick to it. That's basically the bottom line. The right. more restrictions you have... The, the more rules you make, the more you become a rule breaker, basically is what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. So you have to build in a little bit of flexibility. And I think a smart way to do it is a 10% rule. Yeah. In terms of food quality, we're talking about food quality here. So if 90% of the food you eat is mostly unprocessed, nutrient-dense food, the other 10% that you eat, whatever it is, have at it. I mean, that's my interpretation of what if it fits your macros should be or what flexible, mm-hmm. flexible dieting um, should be. Right. And I think that's one of the, like to your point before about having more information now, and I think that's one of the biggest areas that that's been helpful because I know even, you know, back when I was in high school and I kind of thought I knew everything at that time. And I remember somebody on a forum saying that they could still lose as much fat eating the Snickers as oatmeal and whatever. And for some reason, that example sticks in my head, this guy saying that because I thought he was so wrong and I thought he was crazy for saying that. And nowadays we know that that actually is true. I mean, I'm not saying that Snickers and oatmeal are the same thing, but if they're matched for calories, you can still lose fat. And I also think it's good nowadays because there isn't so much obsession with having everything perfect because it can, you know, drive your life. I mean, when I was having six or seven meals, not only the same macros, but literally the exact same meals six times a day for a year on end. And you just think this is what I have to have. And so now just understanding, like you said, flexible dieting is probably the perfect term because you realize, okay, maybe I can't have this, but I can have something like this somewhere else, and it more or less is going to result in the same end result. So I think that's a big thing. Uh, another thing I read from you was when you had first talked about getting into contest condition, and you talked about the double sessions of cardio. And I remember you said you'd get up and you'd do cardio, and I think you'd work out and then maybe do another night session of cardio, something along those lines. And you were getting up to, I think, close to two hours of cardio a day, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Is that something you still recommend, or are you kind of cut back on that now? Because I don't see as many people recommend really high amounts of cardio now compared to maybe 10 to 15 years ago. Well, I did do that 15, 20 years ago at some competitions, and it worked well, but I would prefer not to, and it's not something that I would generally recommend now. I, okay. um, I'm not against cardio uh, and dialing up the cardio. I know some people are. Uh, you know, they'll. Uh, there's people who will quote all the literature on concurrent training and how when uh, you're doing weight training and cardio training at the same time in the same program, as there comes a point when you crank up the cardio high enough, it starts to interfere. It interferes with your with power first, and it interferes with strength, and then it can interfere with your with your muscle mass. But with moderate amounts of cardio, that's not a concern whatsoever. So I do believe that everybody, almost everybody, should include cardio in their program. And what I see cardio as, it's a variable. Uh, the weight training is fixed. I mean, you're, let, let's say you're training five, five times a week. 
um, and it's an hour per session. I mean, you're going to keep doing that program. You're going to within that workout, you may be cranking up the uh, the intensity, and you're going to be using progressive overload. But the cardio doesn't necessarily start and finish at the same volume. So my recommendation is start with as little as you can get away with, which might be a moderate amount, say three days a week when you're starting out a cut, and it might be only 30 minutes. And then monitor your results. Use nutrition primarily as your number one tool for cutting fat and make adjustments to your nutrition. Pull your calories down, pull your carbs down, whatever you're going to do as your, your first order of priority. But don't write off cardio as another option for increasing your calorie deficit and for keeping progress going. So basically what I will do is I will also progress my cardio. So I might move up then to say four days a week if I wasn't getting lean enough. And then I might move up to five days a week and six days a week. And typically over the course of my whole bodybuilding career, I would get to the point where I would do cardio almost every day, like six days a week. And mm -hmm. the duration would be up there around 40 to 50 minutes. That was typical for me. And my body responded really, really well to it. You know, yeah. pe people may get different mileage from it. It may be more beneficial for some, less beneficial for some. Some people might get that negative response that they feel like they're overtraining. They might see, a, you know, maybe their lean body mass or their strength goes down. But for me, it was just another way. It was another dial to turn during contest prep. Like right. one dial I turn is calories, and I'm tweaking calories down. Or maybe I, I tweak the calories down specifically from carbs because I want to leave I want to leave the um, the protein alone. So I'll just tweak down the, the carb calories a little bit, and then I'll tweak up the you know the, the the cardio calories. So like if the only tool you have, if the only dial you have to turn is your nutrition, but I have two dials, I just feel like I have more tools than you do. And yet a lot of people are right. afraid to use that. So it's just a matter of balance. It's just a matter of balance, you know, and back in the early days, yeah, I was, I was probably overtraining on cardio. Um, but the results, the results um, turned out okay for me too. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, and yeah, you still see the extremes there too. You have a lot of people now, it's like they almost brag about not doing cardio. Exactly. I've seen that. Like, you know, why not just do some, and first of all, it's healthy, but secondly, like you said, there's that other thing that you're able to adjust. Um, but then, of course, you don't want to go too crazy with it. I know, you know, back at my, the most intense I was going was I would wake up and I'd do an hour of cardio. And of course, I was jogging, so it was high impact cardio. And then after school, I'd have an hour or two long practice, and then I'd work out. And, and you know, doing that every day, I was burnt out. I was just yeah. dead after a couple of weeks. So something like that, that extreme. That's another good point. The type of cardio is a major influence. Um, there's been some uh, some of those research studies on concurrent training have looked at the specific type of cardio and running. They found out of all the types of cardio, running is most difficult to recover from. It just demands more sort of recovery capacity, and it's because of those eccentric muscle contractions when you because of the impact. So they when they compared it to cycling, cycling was the least likely to cause any muscle loss or or to cause an interference effect. In fact. Uh, I don't know if you've seen on social media these crazy pictures of sprint cyclists, what their legs look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're ridiculous. They're so muscular. So you yeah. know, if you get on and, and you do sprints too, if you're doing uh, interval training on a site on a cycle, I think that's really very compatible with bodybuilding. And yeah. I think that my legs were the most cut and the most vascular ever when I was doing more cycling than other cardio, and when I was also um, running up stadium steps. Those are two mm -hmm. types of. Uh, of cardio and it was interval training it wasn't it wasn't long duration right cardio but it was really effective and didn't compromise my physique at all yeah one of the uh the best purchases i've made in the last few years was just getting a stationary bike in my home 
It has just made it so easy. I don't have to worry about getting ready for the gym. I just have it. And so probably four days a week, I'll do some type of cardio on that bike, you know, maybe two days at intervals and two days of just like a steady state, but definitely one of the best purchases I've made and makes it really convenient. So let's see. So how long have you been doing this? Now you said 14 and you're how old now? I just turned 50. Just turned 50. Okay. Yep. So you're looking at about 36 years there. Um, as you got older, what adjustments have you had to make to your training? I mean, I imagine at this point you're more trying to maintain, I could be wrong, but you know, trying to maintain all the muscle that you've built, but what have you noticed in your training and nutrition that's had to change there? Uh, mostly training. I haven't changed my nutrition. Um, I know a lot of, I've experimented with nutrition, but you know what? I did that early on in my career. I mean, now keto is this humongous thing right now, but right, that's right. not that's not new either. Sure. I mean, first of all, it goes back to uh, Vince Garando was recommending low carb, high fat diets in the 1960s, yeah. and I, I had plugged into his stuff. So you know, I, I was experimenting with diets in the in the late 80s and early 90s. Like I experimented with keto and I just and other low fat, high carb, and I never ended up making that my my method, but I tried it. Mm -hmm. So I, I, and I tried other diets too. I tried extremely low fat. I, I tried uh, high carb, moderate protein, low fat diets where the, the fat percentage was probably like six or 7% of the total wow. calories, which I mean, Jeez. we wouldn't do today. I mean, but I, but I experimented yeah. a lot to see what would happen. How'd you I, feel on that? I actually, I felt fine. I strangely right. enough. Yeah. I, I really didn't see any detriment. In fact, um, the people I learned that from was Lee Labrada okay. and Keith Klein. Uh, did a, a program called Get Lean, and mm. I think it's copyrighted back in like 91, 92, somewhere. I mean, it was the, it was the predominant idea back then. Right, right. Yeah. It was low, was low fat, and and it was you know the marketing back then was you know even the general food industry outside the fitness industry. You look at all the labels; they all said put low fat. It was just right. ingrained into everybody. So we you know just we tried it, but you know you asked how things have changed over the years. I got most of that experimentation with nutrition side of stuff out of the way when I was younger and I figured out my body. I figured out what worked for me because people are different. I do believe that some people will respond better on lower carb diets. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a low carb hater. It's not my, it's not the style of nutrition that I, I promote. Um, aside from when you do a contest diet, you know, your protein mm -hmm. goes way up and the carbs come down a little bit, but I'm not talking right. about keto. Um, but because I got all of those experiments out of the way when I was younger, I've been consistent for years and years and years ever since. I really haven't changed anything. Maybe I don't eat as often anymore. I mean, I don't feel any necessity to eat six meals a day, but I still lean towards more meal frequency, at least because I prefer it, if that's the yeah. only reason, if my personal preference. And also, I do think that, you know, these very recent studies that came out saying that it's it's better for protein metabolism, that's just another one more argument that one I can more reason, make. sure. So uh, I haven't really changed. I haven't changed my nutrition in, in all these years. It's steady. I haven't. I haven't felt the need to. Uh, oh, there's this new this new trend. I'm going to try this and just see what happens. Right. Try this, and I just I don't I don't hop on bandwagons myself, and I don't want to encourage other people to do the same, except to the degree that they should experiment a little bit in their early stages to learn right. just the way the way that I did. So nutrition hasn't changed. It's the training that has had to change a little bit. You know, first of all, I retired from competition in 2005. So my all of my competitions uh, were between 1989 and 2005. Okay. Um, and the last competition I ever did in 2005 was the the New Jersey, uh, the Golds New Jersey Classic, the MPC New Jersey Classic. Mm -hmm. um, cool. So since then, it was just uh, I, I keep training for for life, for for fitness, for health, for strength, for for recreation. But it's not quite as hardcore or intense. Right. Um, I still use bodybuilding training though. It's kind of the same with nutrition is I haven't really changed. Like I, I haven't 
switched to a different style. It's still bodybuilding training. It's still, you know, people will call it a bro split mm-hmm. these days. You know, they never, back then, back in the 90s, it was just the way everybody trained. They would split up their right. body four, four ways and, you know, they'd have a chest and a bicep day and, you know, and a, a shoulder day. You know, they'd split it up like that. Hit each muscle group once every five or six uh, six days, something like that, and I still do that and still respond from it, you know, to this day. Yeah. I just have to be a little care- more careful because of my joints. There's, sure. you know, 36 years of uh, training puts some wear and tear on your joints, right. and you know, I don't. It's just not. It's not worth getting an injury to see how much weight I can lift. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my style shifts shifts a little bit to how can I make a heavy uh, lighter weight feel heavier? Right. You know, so I might take a rest interval that's a little bit shorter. Uh, we know, I mean, we know what all the research says about longer rest intervals are superior for strength, right. probably for muscle size too. But you can still maintain and even build muscle with shorter rest intervals too. Sure. So I don't need as much weight, and, and that is that—that's the kind of thing that I change. I'll use more continuous tension, um, and I'll, which means I won't lock out, so I don't need right. as much. I'll use more supersets, which might restrict the weight a little bit, but again, I don't need as much weight, and I still get the same hypertrophy effect. Right. And I mean, I know you used to lift pretty heavy back in your college and the competing days, right? I mean, what were you, I forget exactly, but what were you squatting back in your day? Uh, well, at one point I did get over 400. I did 405 for a few reps, but I had lower, lower back problems, a herniated disc. So right. um, after that, I rarely went over 315. But what I started to do is train high reps. So I got gotcha. up to 25 reps with 315 was my best. Gotcha. And there's like one of the arguments I see now for continuing with the, I guess, the bro split is just that, even if the science might show a higher frequency is more effective, and it seems to be that that way, that is true now. I've seen other people argue that the effect on the joints isn't worth it and that you might get slightly slower growth. But when you're hitting you know, these heavy movements with the same movement pattern two, three, four times a week, that that can really beat up the joints and the benefit isn't worth the risk there for some people. Yeah, yeah. It's also with, with the frequency, I think a lot of people are missing – uh, missing the point because they're 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 being dichotomous. They're saying, should I train each muscle once a week or twice a week? There's a whole bunch of room in the middle, in between there, mm-hmm. and so you could train each muscle group once every four or five or six days. And and if you didn't consider that that was a possibility, if you're only thinking, well, it has to be twice a week or once a week, you're kind of you're missing the the middle ground. And I've actually seen the best results I've ever gotten with with a, about once every four or five six days in that range, not not twice a week, to tell you the truth. And I've experimented a lot with both. And that's when you say that you're talking about directly, not the fact that there's overlap. So obviously, when you hit shoulders, you're going to get some tricep. And stuff yeah, like that. yeah. I don't really. <clears throat> I know there is overlap, and but I don't try to quantify that. It's pretty hard. You know, there's, yeah, there's, it people, is. Are, there's people still arguing back and forth about how you what actually counts is and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the uh, interviews I liked the most back when I think you were hosting some interviews was with Pete Siegel. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, I'm a big fan of him. I know you are a big fan of him, and it's something that isn't talked about as much now. But you know, that's a lot of to do with the power of the mind and and how you know visualizing can help. So, when did you start looking into that area of bodybuilding, and can you just kind of detail your success with those methods a little bit? Right from day one, Arnold. Really? Was, Arnold's. Well, see, the first place I heard about sports psychology <clears throat> was from Arnold. Arnold was a guy talking about visualization. He was ahead of mm-hmm. his time in a lot of ways. Yeah. I the first book I read on bodybuilding was The Education of a Bodybuilder by by Arnold, and it was part autobiography and part instruction manual. And it was in that book that he he made these analogies like when I'm training my biceps, I'm visualizing them, not just big but huge like mountains. Right. And over and over and over again, he talked about the mind. He talked about concentration, about visualization. 
sim- simple positive thinking or just optimism, uh, you know, always focusing on your goal. And so he was my first introduction to, you know, the power of the mind in bodybuilding. And then from there, uh, my radar, I was, my radar was up looking for this kind of information. And back in muscle and fitness, <clears throat> there were some columns about sports psychology. Um, Judd, Dr. Judd Bysoto was one, and his, his column was phenomenal. He was a, a PhD sports psychologist, and he wrote uh, a classic book called Hypnotize Me and Make Me Great. So I read that and started to learn about uh, hypnosis and the, the power, more importantly, the power of the subconscious mind. And, you know, this is a guy that went on and squatted triple body weight. He weighed about 130 pounds, and he squatted triple his body weight huh. after he had back surgery. It, it just an amazing accomplishment. I'm like, wow, is this, is this what focusing on, on your mental power can do? I want to learn more about this. And then again in muscle and fitness, I saw a column, another one, and I think it was called The Mind and Bodybuilding. It was by Pete Siegel. And I started following his columns and clipping his articles. Just And it was about thinking right, how to, how to think right. Right. I mean, today they might call it po- uh, cognitive psychology or, or positive mm-hmm. psychology, or some people are okay with calling it self-talk. Um, some people call, you know, call it um, creating affirmations. Other people don't like that term. But whatever you want to call it, it's just kind of controlling that dialogue in your mind uh, is what it was about and controlling the pictures in your mind, how you talk to yourself and the pictures that you make to yourself. And it, it, may, it just makes a massive difference in your performance. You know, some people want to go way out on a limb and say that there's a, some kind of other mind-body effect where, you know, the, the, the things that you can't exactly explain will happen in terms of performance and physique, you know, and, and you know, may, we may not be able to prove that, but it's just something that's always been in the back of my mind. Yeah. Yeah, my, my take on it is, you know, I, I agree with everything you just said, and I found that, I guess, visualization and positive thinking or however you want to say it, seems to help a lot with skills and habits. And so, you know, there's the studies on the people who were throwing darts and, you know, shooting basketballs and everything like that. And for anybody who doesn't know, the visualization group pretty much had the same results as the people who actually did physical practice, which is pretty amazing. Um, But things like that in a sport where it's a skill, I think it's very helpful. And also, I think it's helpful for habits. So if somebody's had a, a bad dietary habit their whole life, but they're constantly visualizing themselves fit and sticking to their diet, I think that helps. For me, personally, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. It, I would imagine it has less of an effect on actual you know, hypertrophy or actual fat loss. It's certainly not going to change the thermodynamics. So if somebody's already got, you know, for me, I, I noticed it helped when I was working on different sports skills. But there was a period of time where I did try for a, a whole summer. And I wouldn't say I got any stronger because I was already 100% consistent with everything I was doing. So I don't know if it was able to, you know, change physical processes like that, but I don't know what you think about that. Well, probably not, and if it does, there's probably no way we can prove it. But mm-hmm. I think what we might be able to, if we can't prove it, we can either argue it out logically, is that if there's a part of our mind called the subconscious, and basically that's where all of our habits are, all of our automatic behavior. Basically, if subconscious mind controls automatic behavior, and if we agree that, say, of everything we do is automatic. We don't even realize how much of everything we do is automatic. Like everything is habit. Everything. We don't realize it because we're we're thinking all day long. Sometimes we don't realize that a a thought, a conscious thought, bubbles up from our subconscious into our conscious awareness. And that's why we realize it. But sometimes we just – so we think we're controlling our behavior consciously, um, but actually it's just all – it's all autopilot. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens with all of this – I like to call it mental training work that we do. What happens is I believe we can program or influence our subconscious mind and then change automatic behaviors. Now, we, we know in a lot of ways how automatic behaviors influence the results we get. Like, here's a good example is non-exercise activity thermogenesis is neat. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Okay, you look, it, it's pretty fascinating when you look at the studies on meat. But basically, it actually explains the whole concept of the so-called ectomorph and endomorph body type. All right. Like the, the skinny guy, <clears throat> what everybody usually thinks is skinny guy was born with a super hyper metabolism. Blessed guy is never going to get fat. He's automatically burns everything off. But the truth is this guy is hyperactive and, and like right down to the point of, <clears throat> of uh, uh, fidgeting, you know, just can't, can't sit still. And it happens all day long and you burn an extraordinary amount of calories doing that. So, I mean, that's just one little example of, of how a lot of uh, uh, behavior is below our level of conscious awareness. And yeah. I think it extends out. To, to a much, much wider degree than most people think. I mean, we make all these decisions every day. I think it was um, Brian Wansink, um, the guy who wrote Mindless Eating, who said we make something like 200 plus food decisions every day. Wow. And, you know, a lot of, we make all kinds of decisions all day long, and it's, it's, it's below conscious awareness. So I think this is how we have to think about why, why it's worth putting some effort into learning about mental training and psychology. Yeah. Uh, is because this is a way for us to influence our, our own behavior um, to the point where it's, it's, it's our automatic behavior. And, it's, and then, right. then, then we're not dealing with willpower, gritting our teeth. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the neat example is a great one. Um, you know, one of the girls I just started training, typical, I eat so much and I can't gain weight kind of thing. And for one, you know, it, the reality is more that she eats a lot in one sitting and then doesn't eat the rest of the day. So she thinks she's eating so much. But then two, she's so fidgety. And, you know, you just hang out with her for an hour. She just doesn't stop moving. Um, and so that's, a, I think, a great example there. Um, so you have a book either. It's, it's just come out, I believe, on progressive overload. Is that right? Yeah. Or it's coming out. Okay. Uh, it, yeah, it's been out for last year. Okay. And, you know, that's obviously one of the, the main drivers we talk about for muscle growth. And a lot of people, they think of progressive overload as you add weight to the bar and that's it. So aside from that, how much additional growth? Because I think we'd all agree if somebody takes their bench press from 135 for 10 to 285 for 10, their chest is going to be a lot bigger. But aside from just adding weight, how much more growth do you think we can see from other methods? And what are some of those methods you look into? Well, the huge one now, it's just been absolutely huge the last five, six, seven years in the literature is uh, volume. Mm -hmm. Everybody's talking about volume. Yep. And you know what? They weren't talking about it back in the 90s. I mean, progressive overload was the double overload system right out of Weider's book. You know, yeah. it's you, you, you add, add a rep. So if you're, let's suppose you choose a rep range 8 to 12 and you're starting with 100 pounds, your first workout is. Uh, three sets of eight reps with 100 pounds. And because um, your, your goal might be to add weight and go to 105 or 110 pounds, but you can't, you're not quite ready to do that yet, you do it in progressive steps. So first you build up your, the first level of progression is your reps. So then you go to nine reps with the same weight, the same 100 pounds, and then 10 reps, and then 11 reps, and then 12 reps. So now you've hit the upper rep bracket number, 12 reps with 100 pounds. You've made progression. You have increased your volume. Then you increase the weight and drop the reps back down and repeat. Mm -hmm. So that's that's basic double um, basic double progressive overload. But what a lot of people overlook is uh, volume. Whereas you, there's other ways to increase. There's other ways to overload, and one of them is very very simply is add exercises or add sets. Right. And there's some limitations to there's limitations to um, increasing weight. That's the biggest. That's one of the, the the problems people have wrapping their head around is I can't keep increasing the weight. I get stuck. I keep hitting plateaus, and that's just all. It's part of training. It's it's normal that you you go up and up and up in your weight, then you hit a you hit a plateau. But when you hit that plateau, you can't increase more weight. <clears throat> you can still add more volume other ways. You could add one more set. So you were doing three sets. Now you go to four sets. Mm 
if you were on more of um this kind of happens naturally for beginners because usually they start with less exercises right so as you advance from beginner to intermediate and, and into advanced, you can start adding more exercises. So you were doing one exercise per body part, then you go to two, then you go to three. You can build that up to the point that it stays practical and that you can recover. You're going to build a lot more muscle by increasing your volume. And I think this is the this is um this is this is the conversation that that everybody in exercise science and hypertrophy research is having right now. Right. Um, there's tons of uh, studies on this. It's being written up in all the research reviews. But I, I think that most um, layperson and recreational tra trainers are not hip to this yet. They're not. They're, they don't understand how progressive overload can be applied by. Um, basically, progressive overload isn't just lift more weight. It's do more work. That's sure. the thing to remember. So you can do more work by adding more reps. You can do more work by adding more weight. You can do more work by adding more volume. And there's little neat little tricky ways that you can do it too. Like there was a recent study on. Um, Drop sets that found that drop sets are effective, and that's something the bodybuilders right. have, have always believed. But what they concluded was uh, the time efficiency aspect of it. It's a time efficient way to get more volume in. So people say, well, I can't just keep adding more sets and more sets and more sets. But if you add a triple drop set at the end of your workout, you've essentially added three more sets, and it hardly took you any extra time at all. And if you calculate the volume load on that, it's a pretty dramatic bump up in your volume. So you, sure it's going to have a pretty substantial effect on your muscle growth then. Basically, there is a good relationship between volume and muscle growth. Yeah, I believe that study was showing three drop sets versus three sets, and the actual hypertrophy was pretty similar between yeah. them, and obviously the drop sets went a lot faster. So, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that ties in with the other book you have. with uh, It's mostly around supersets, right? Supersets and yeah. time efficiency, so kind of similar principles there. How are the two books different? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, last year I, I – there. Um, they're ebooks that are available from our Burn the Fat Inner Circle website. And, and the, the first one, Progressive Overload, it's just called the Ultimate Progressive Overload Manual. It focuses completely on um, all the methods of overload. I mean, there's six or seven or maybe even eight different methods. It's not just adding more weight. Right. The other book is called um, TNB Turbo. It's the New Body Turbo. It's a training system. It's a training program. It's not um, okay. the, the overload is basically talking about the principle. It's not a workout program. TNB Turbo is a superset training system. And supersets is, is such a phenomenal, phenomenal technique, and it's been used in bodybuilding for going back, I mean, decades. And there's all kinds of different supersets, and a lot of people don't realize um, differences between them. But essentially, it's two exercises back-to-back, um, -back, exercises in pairs in a row with no rest in between. And then you take a rest interval after the two exercises. So the benefit is, well, it's talking about volume and time efficiency. You can cram more work into the same time. Sometimes you can even cram more work into less time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of debate about what's the best kind of superset, and it's become really pretty clear that the antagonist superset is one of the most effective ways you can do it. And right. an antagonist is when you we're training the muscles on the opposite side of a joint. Like uh, a good example is a bench press and a bent over row. Mm -hmm. So it's opposite muscles, chest and back. It's all opposite movement patterns, push and a pull movement pattern. And there's something special about antagonist supersets that they found is that the, working the, um, the agonist, the first muscle, and then going to work in the antagonist makes the antagonist uh, performance better, which is totally counterintuitive because you yeah. think, well, well, I'm fatigued, so I'm going to be tired, 
after doing that first first set, so I go and do the second exercise, I'm not going to perform as well, and that's not what happens. So there is there is actually some kind of additive benefit on top of time efficiency that you can actually get a better workout when you do antagonist supersets. I think a simple way, a great way that anybody can do it is their arm work, because I know there's people that actually don't even do direct arm work. Yeah. They figure, oh, I did the rows, I did the chin-ups, you know, my biceps are covered, and I did the pushing exercises. And if you have great arm genetics and your arms are fantastic and you don't train them directly, great. But I don't think most people right. are like that. Uh, and people doing time efficiency training, they sometimes figure, uh, I don't have time for the little muscle groups. It's not all that. You know, there's no there's less bang for your buck. But right. supersetting super is the answer. You can superset buys and tries and take short rest interval after the second exercise and be done in just literally in just minutes. And mm -hmm. the difference in your arms would be amazing. So that's what this whole program is about. It's about uh, superset training, mostly antagonist supersets, but I also teach all of the other different kind of supersets. Same, there's the same muscle group superset. There's um, staggered supersets where you might, say, throw a set of calves in between any random muscle group just to get your calves right. training done out of the way. Um, there's compound supersets, which will turn the workout very metabolic. So if you, if you want to get an enhanced fat burning effect, you can just choose mostly compound exercises. You know, and the, and the list goes on. And um, it's all very, very well researched now. I, I read 30 different studies in putting this together. There's at least 30 studies on different types of supersets out there now. Huh. Yeah, and I think, I think that's a, a big thing because at least for me, you know, when I was getting into this, I just thought superset was the same muscle group. So, you know, you do a row and a lap pull down or something like that with no rest in between. And that's, that's what a superset was. But like you said, those antagonizing supersets are great. And actually, thinking about it, almost all of my workouts have supersets in that regard just from a time efficiency because if I just did a set of bench press, I don't want to just sit there for four or five minutes to do another bench. I could go do a row and then in the same time frame get that in there. And so it's hugely efficient. So I think that's a big point. That's so, a really uh, good point uh, for a lot of your uh, busy people, average trainees, is mm -hmm. just in terms of person, not just not just time efficiency, but but preference, training preference. I have met a lot of people who, who just, they cannot stand sitting around in between sets. They feel like yeah. they're, they, it, it's more than they feel like they're wasting time. They just, they just dislike it. They, they, they feel like they should be doing something and they, they, right. they have the energy to do it. So they, they actually prefer the training style. And if they prefer the style of training that they're using, they're going to stick to the program better. I mean, because it's all Absolutely. about adherence. That's all, it's all about can you, can you stick with it? And if you're on a program you don't enjoy, I mean, hey, it's great if you want to sit around and rest three minutes between sets so you get maximum strength. That's one thing, but th there's a good reason you might not recommend that to everybody. It's because people don't like it. <laughs> right. They, they just don't like it. Right. Yeah, and if you're talking about a reasonable amount of volume for two or more muscle groups, I mean, that could be a very long workout if you're waiting four or five minutes between every right. single set. You know, it just kind of drags along. So, so uh, last question here is, I like to kind of end it with what is your actionable step. And so for everybody listening to this who has these goals, you know, fat loss or muscle growth, it's kind of a generic question, but what is your next actionable step to take from what we've talked about today? Uh, I, I think I'm a, I'm a huge fan of having a plan and having it in writing. And so I'm kind of going to circle back to what I talked about in the beginning is um, the, the meal plan method is actually having planning in advance what you're going to eat each day and putting it on paper. And then you don't go into your day wondering what you're going to eat. It's it's already it's already done. In fact, you don't even technically have to count calories if you already created your meal plan in advance. You just follow what's right. on on the piece of paper. So I mean that's um, half of your plan. 
The other half of your plan is your training plan. So you don't walk into the gym and just wing it. You have your whole workout routine on paper, exercises, sets, reps, your rest intervals, or whether it's supersets. And, and beyond that, you have it transferred into a schedule. So you're, it's literally in your weekly calendar. So what days you're going to train and what time you're going to train. And that's a technique that you know in psychology they've proven will double your compliance. So basically have a plan, have it specific, have a time, have a date, you know, have a what, where, when, have it yeah. all in writing and it's all in front of you and you, you're going to stick to it. You're going to stick to it twice as easily. I love that. I love the writing things down. That's actually something I got from you a long time ago was I think you mentioned that at any time somebody could ask you about like your goals and you have it written down in your pocket. And I took that for a long time and I had that same thing. And you know, now a lot of it's on my computer, but yeah, definitely writing things down will kind of keep you accountable. So I like that a lot. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, everybody, we can find Tom Venuto at the Burn the Fat Inner Circle. Like I said, there's Burn the Fat, Feed the Muscle. He's got his progressive overload book. He's got his superset book. Is there anything else that people should look out for for you? Um, that's it. You can uh, Our members-only community is BurnTheFatInnerCircle.com, and the, the public website is uh, BurnTheFatBlog.com. All right. Well, thanks again so much. Okay. Really hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Tom Venuto and I today. Uh, if you did and you want to see more interviews, please subscribe to the channel and like the video. And if you like the cause that we're donating to today, please feel free to make your own donation to them as well.